Welcome back, everyone. Thank you for coming. Um, we are visiting John's Gospel. I say it every week. John teaches us about the teaching of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell us what Jesus did. John tells us what Jesus taught. And John uses incidents from the life of Jesus to illustrate the teaching of Jesus. Today is a particularly helpful way of pointing that out. We are going to be looking in John chapters 9 and 10. And I will unpack it a little for us, and then I do have a handout that you can take home with you as well. Um, but, but today's readings are particularly helpful in unpacking John's method. John loves Jesus. John is passionate about the teachings of Jesus and wants us to understand them. Um, John has a general method that you can find him unpacking as he travels through this gospel. John will tell us of something Jesus does. He then records the discussion that people have around the thing that Jesus does. And then he provides some interpretation. So Jesus feeds the 5,000. The people talk about it. And then an explanation is given. Today's passage is about Jesus healing a person born blind on the Sabbath. I will unpack it so that we understand his method a bit better. But literally, Jesus, John tells us about the healing. John gives us all the discussion that happens around it. And then John says, and here's an interpretive tool. Here's a way of understanding what has happened. Please understand that when John tells the story about the man born blind, it's not just a random story. He has picked the story on purpose. Um, and, and you must be aware that in everything John tells us, Nothing is just random. He doesn't just stick a story in because he remembered it. In fact, we all come to it. There's a point later in the gospel where John will say, and there are many other things that Jesus did that are not recorded in this book. I've told you these stories so that you might have faith. Be aware, I have not told you everything that happened. So when we see a story, we almost have to step back and say, I wonder why John is telling us this story. Out of all the stories he could have chosen, why this one? And what is he hoping we will learn from, from listening to this story? And most often, back then, it was listening. We have this rare privilege of literally having Scripture available to ourselves. For much of Christian history, people have not had this. Only from 
the 1600s on did people begin to have the possibility of possessing their own copy of the scripture when printing was invented. Before that, people would have to listen. And so, in a sense, John's style is written for audio, for people to listen. He bears that in mind, that when, when we hear these stories, John, John could never have envisaged people sitting with printed copies in front of them. And so he develops a style. He tells a story to catch your attention. He talks about how various people felt about it. And then he tries to offer an interpretive tool. The idea of studying scripture is a very new idea. It's been around for 500 years. But the first 1,500 years, people could not study scripture like we do. So we are plunging in John chapter 9. I'll give us just a, I'm not going to read everything. But we do need to know what happens. So there is a story that happens. John 9 verse 1. As Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, so that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day, night is coming, when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground, made mud with saliva. He anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said, Go and wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. A blind man in a culture where it was generally thought that physical afflictions were the consequence of sin. If there was something wrong with you, the disciples literally asked the right question. So was it his sin? Was it his parents' sin? Whose sin made this man blind? And... And in essence, Jesus comes back and says, there was no sin involved in this man's blindness. His illness is not because somebody has sinned. A difficult concept because it was accepted, culturally accepted, that if you had some kind of ailment, somebody, somewhere, and people were happy to go back generations to the fifth, fourth and fifth generation to ask, was it my father, my grandfather, my family? And people were also as happy to label those who had sinned. Well, you know, he comes from that family. I'm not surprised. We know the family's reputation. 
Maybe you've had that flung at you, but, but the, the point, it was a culturally accepted question. The disciples were not out of step with their culture. Jesus startles them by saying, no, there's no sin here, but we will see the glory of God. So John sets up the incident, the thing that has happened. John then talks about the discussion as a consequence of what has happened. So there's dialogue that happens around this. And it is fascinating dialogue and worth pausing. So the man, says John, goes away washes his eyes, comes back and can see, and it's game on. I hope you guys read the chapter. It's fascinating. First of all, his friends and his neighbors say, is it really him? It looks like him, but we know that he can't see. So it can't be him. But obviously others are saying, no, but it is him because we know him. We've seen him grow up in front of us. So, so a fascinating discussion happened with the friends and neighbors. The thing John never records, which we might have expected, and I want to try it on you. So if someone in your family has been blind since birth, And suddenly they can see. Surely the first thing the family does is have a party. Surely somewhere you, you ought to be overjoyed. I mean, even when someone has a cataract op or when somebody, and they can see, the joy and the excitement at being able to see is overwhelming. So this man is excited. He's understandably having the party all by himself while everybody around him is saying we don't quite understand what happens I don't see the family having the party I see them wondering what happened so I can still deal with the family he then goes to the temple and it's here that stuff gets really sad um, John 9.16, some of the Pharisees said, The man who did this cannot be from God because he did not obey the Sabbath law. We hear that someone prayed for you, but he can't possibly be God's person. Because how dare he heal on the Sabbath? Do you hear, do you hear how weird... This argument really is. The Sabbath, which ought to be the day for praising God, the day for giving glory to God, suddenly has become the day when God's not allowed to do anything that can bring joy to people. Those who are responsible for the things of God shut down the things of God. You, you hear how the story works. The very people who should be saying, let's have a party, are saying, this can't be God at work. How dare God do something like this on the Sabbath? Don't you know that the Sabbath 
So, so it reminds me, I, I know nothing about the culture you grew up in. But I grew up in a deeply reformed culture where the Sabbath was the most miserable day of the week. We were not allowed to listen to any music that wasn't church music. We weren't. In fact, in South Africa, there were no movies on Sundays. You couldn't watch movies. You couldn't listen to... There was a huge debate about whether we could even go to the beach on Sunday, which was initiated by my granny. And as a little boy, I was convinced that granny wanted us to be unhappy on Sundays. <laughs> because God is not a God of joy. You will sit quietly, read your Bible. Granny did allow us to read other religious books as well. There was this terrible time when my dad had long leave and Granny looked after my sister and myself. Man, I remember each night praying, Lord, please bring my dad's leave to an end. <laughs> Understand, she's shaped. She's shaped by her culture. But the Sabbath was serious. Does this ring bells with anyone? I'll just say that I grew up in Canton, which was really close to Iowa. And there were a lot of Dutch or uh, Reformed churches in Iowa. And there were, the gas stations weren't open in Iowa. Yes, absolutely. No farming on Sunday. No farming. He was out. Monday morning, he, he would, you, would, might, you, you might see him out in the field, but maybe uh, bailing me or something. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Makes sense. How, how do we create a God who is so miserable that he sucks the joy out of life? We see it here in the story where the Pharisees say to the man, it's just not possible that God could have cured you. This man cannot be from God. John 19, 17, the Pharisees asked the man once more, you say he cured you of your blindness? Well, what do you say about him? And this man says, well, he, he's a prophet. He's amazing. And then in verse 24, a second time they called back the man who'd been born blind and said to him, Promise before God that you will tell the truth. We know that this man who cured you is a sinner. How do we know it? Because he couldn't, if he cures you on the Sabbath, then he has to be a sinner. So a sinner can do something good. Clearly, this is not about the healing. This is about preserving the good order in the temple. And if he disturbs the good order, he can't be a good man. And then verse 25, John 19, 25, just this awesome answer. I don't know if he's a sinner or not, the man replied. One thing I do know, I was blind and now I see. You can decide what you, but I know that I can see. And for this man, what can be more joyful 
than I can see. But it's not as simple as that because curing this man implies that somehow this rabbi is in touch with God and implies that somehow this man who we have thought is cursed because he's blind is no longer cursed by God. He is now God's beloved. Is it possible that God can love people who have ailments? It challenges the whole theological construct. If you live in a world that believes people are, are sinful and the sign of their sin is their illness, then in essence what Jesus is doing is declaring that this man is no longer a sinner. The healing is a sign of God's blessing. And they who run the temple are struggling with this idea. How dare this rural rabbi come into our temple and declare God's healing over people. Doesn't he know we're in charge here? He's messing up the system. Do you, do you, so, so a complete misplacing. There's no, there's, there's no attempt to rejoice with the man. Surely if you're God's leaders and somebody can see, the rabbi should get around and say, let's sing a psalm of praise because God has done something. And instead they say, no, let's figure out how we can dismantle this thing that has happened. Because it is messing with the good order that we have. I'll get to the interpretive tool in a moment, but I do want to point out the history of our faith has always struggled with the mysterious. When God does things we cannot explain, we, I include myself, who hold the faith together, want an explanation before we will rejoice. It kind of puts the cart before the horse because the fact is God is mysterious. God is beyond our explaining. But it would seem... I need to be able to explain God because if I explain God, then the situation becomes safe. When I can't explain God, I no longer have control. <laughs> that is the sad story of the past 2,000 years of Christian faith. The attempt to have control of the faith, the attempt to explain everything that happens, and and, and, and the anger and the dismay from religious leaders when things happen that you cannot explain or cannot control. Late 1500s, Martin Luther, not Martin Luther King, the, the original Martin Luther, writes some hymns in German that the local people can sing. And those hymns take off. People learn them and they sing them with joy. Because suddenly they're able to hear songs in their own language. They don't have to sing in Latin. And the saddest moment is when the official church bans the hymns. How dare you sing to God in German? Don't you know God only speaks Latin? <laughs> 
So something that was bringing great joy to the hearts of people gets banned because we are losing control. Or in our own Methodist history, in the late 1700s, Charles Wesley writes hymns. And the official church of England bans Wesley's hymns. They call them silly little rhymes. They do not have the grandeur and the majesty of the great hymns. But they take off. And people sing Wesley's hymns everywhere. But we've got to shut them down because we can't control the joy of the hymns. I throw that out just to help us feel a little less comfortable. The moment you and I try and shut, shut joy down, we need to be asking, hang on, um, are you saying joy comes from the devil? Is it possible that God can be giving this joy? Make sense? I don't know why the older we get, the less we want other people to have joy. We want to suck the joy out of their lives too. <laughs> you know? So, so the way John writes his gospel, be clear, when John wrote his gospel, they weren't the chapters that we have in front of us. These chapters were invented in the 15 and 1600s when they started publishing the Bible. Before that, it was just the writings, initially in scrolls, but over time, we, we develop a system of chapters and verses because once everybody has a Bible in their hands, I have to tell you where we are so that you can find it. So the original texts do not have chapters and verses in them at all. Um, so John writes a story that in his mind includes what we have as chapter 9 and chapter 10 as one story. It's all part of a whole. And the interpretive tool that John offers us is John 10. John 10, where Jesus is telling a story of a shepherd and sheep. A familiar story that people would know. But Jesus saying, if you want to understand God, if you want to get your head around who God is, think of a shepherd and sheep. And so when we encounter a story of a man who has been blind and is healed, think of a shepherd and sheep. If you can imagine God as a good shepherd who loves his sheep, if that is the filter that you use to understand God, then you might be willing to believe that God wants his sheep to be able to see. That God would never be satisfied with a blind sheep. Because good shepherds, good shepherds know that blind sheep can't see where to eat. Good shepherds want their sheep to be able to see where all the other sheep are. Good shepherds would even want the sheep to be able to spot if there's something that's not a sheep sneaking into the flock. So John offers an interpretive tool to understand the action of Jesus. Jesus says, 
this man's going to be blessed. The Pharisees say, we don't have a clue because we don't think God would do that. And God would never do it on the Sabbath. John says, let me offer you a teaching tool. And the teaching tool is the language of a shepherd and a sheep. And if you think of how passionate shepherds are with their sheep, if you think of the care and the love and, and the, the forethought and the provision that shepherds shower on their sheep, you can then begin to talk about the way God loves people and you can begin to believe that perhaps God would want a blind person to be able to see. So John 10 verse 3, the gatekeeper opens the gate. The sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name. He leads them out. That's a shepherd and a sheep. The shepherd loves his sheep. The sheep hear his voice. The sheep respond. So it's not inconceivable that God has loved this man since the moment of his birth. And God has grieved the fact that he's blind. And God rejoices at an opportunity to give him sight. And you don't have to be able to explain it or explain how it happened or figure whether you've got your theology right. Because if, if you think of a shepherd and a sheep, the shepherd who the night before was saying, there's a blind sheep here and I'm not sure how much longer we're going to keep the sheep in the flock, the next morning rejoices because the sheep can see. Does, does that make sense? So, so John's literally illustrating, illustrating the shepherd and the sheep with a story that takes place. John says, if you want to understand what it's like, God being our shepherd, we being the sheep, I'll tell you the story about a man who got his sight back. That's how much God, the, the eternal shepherd, loves the sheep. Classic case of John trying to give some teaching and illustrating it with a specific story. A story that generated all sorts of controversy, but, says John, the controversy really came from those who were trying to manage the faith. I'm quite sure his parents weren't saying, mm, what a pity that our boy can see. They were celebrating. Our boy can see. He himself was saying, I don't know how it happened. In fact, he's saying, I don't care how it happened. The one thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. The man himself is not debating whether Jesus did the theologically correct thing. He's just saying, I'm so glad I can see. There's a startling, a really interesting moment that happens um, in John 10, verse 16. It has bearing on the story. Sometimes it gets lost in the bigger conversation. John 10, verse 16, Jesus says, And I have other sheep that are not in this fold. 
I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. What do you think Jesus is talking about here? And you can do it. As if it isn't shocking enough that a blind man can now see, Jesus says, and by the way, there are other sheep as well who will be welcomed into the flock. Do it with me. Other sheep who possibly you think are blind, other sheep you think are impossible for God to love, but I am telling you, this flock will be made up of more than just the sheep who are here in the temple. The faith that I bring, the God that I proclaim, has a bigger flock than you can imagine. I don't want to put words in Jesus' mouth. They hear. Um, am I making sense? You and I are beneficiaries of that because we are not part of that original flock. We are not Jewish. Jesus is standing in this Jewish temple and saying, but when I talk about the flock of God, it's way bigger than those who are here. And you who are the teachers of the law better begin to dream of something bigger. If you thought it was a bad thing that a blind man, who is part of us, by the way, we know his parents, his family worshipped here forever. If you think it's a bad thing that the blind man should see, Wait until you see who else God is going to welcome into this flock. And at that moment, Jesus literally turns the argument around and says, and I wonder who's really blind in this temple. I wonder who the real blind people are. And you can almost hear the question hang in the air. When those who are so intent on defending the faith and keeping it safe, suddenly... Here, Jesus talking about blindness. They understand. Um, John 9, verse 40. John 9, verse 40. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? And I can almost hear Jesus saying, You said it. You said it. You guys are so obsessed with this person who now can see that you can't even see your own blindness. It's a, it's a, it's a word play, but the rebuke happens. How dare you be so blind to the capacity of the shepherd to love sheep? I think I'm about to launch into a sermon. So, <laughs> does, does this make sense? Um, what you literally have is, is John trying to make a point. So he, he, he's illustrating the capacity of the shepherd to love, not just the sheep who are in the temple, but to love all the sheep. And he says, I have a story to tell you. A story about a man who was was beyond redemption. Because by the way, this blind man would not have been allowed into the temple to worship. 
because if you had a blemish of any kind, you had to stay outside of the temple because the temple was thought to be the holy of holies. And so people with ailments would lie or stand or sit at the door of the temple asking those who were going in, please pray for me. Won't you offer a prayer to God for me? Because they were not allowed in. They were constantly reminded they weren't good enough. They're not up to scratch. So here's this man who, who, who probably all his life had said, say a prayer for me, to the point that he'd probably given up. And Jesus says, okay, we can do that. And the prayer's answered. And the man comes in to the place that he'd not been in his whole life. Because they tell us he was blind since birth. He had never been in there. It meant he had never had any of the, the, the sacramental signs. He had not been through a circumcision. He had not been through bar mitzvah. He had not had any of those signs of God's blessing in his life. Because he was born with a blemish. And suddenly he hears the welcome. You can come inside. God loves you. Can you imagine how he feels? And I think, I think for me, the amazing moment of the shepherd and the sheep. And the shepherd saying, all sheep are welcome. And, and just in case you haven't got it, let me tell you, there's some sheep that are not here that will be welcomed. So my question, so who's really blind here? And if you're going to have a problem with those other sheep coming in, maybe you need to open your eyes to discover the love of God. The topic of diversity. The thing the people struggled most with, with Jesus was that he brought all sorts of people along with him. Why couldn't he just bring respectable people with him? Why couldn't he behave in a respectable way? So here's Jesus who walks into the temple trailing a blind man. Doesn't he know that this guy's not the kind of people we want in the temple? Exactly. <laughs> and Lisa, you tread on our toes. Because I think... I think if we were to ask questions of ourselves, perhaps we all like to hang out with our kind of people. I mean, you guys were cursed with a pastor from South Africa. You know? And you have to put up with him. And he doesn't always understand your ways. And he makes inappropriate jokes. And, you know. <laughs> um... And yet somehow that stretches us. I mean, I've got to put up with you guys as well. Same thing. And it has stretched me and grown me. And so the question of blindness. And that's why this chapter is so important in the Gospel of John. Because this, this chapter asks the big question. Because it's not only asking the question of the people in the temple. It's asking the question of those who hear the Gospel. Are you blind to the love of God? Or are you open to believe that God can love everyone? Are you open to the idea that other sheep can be welcomed into the flock as well? And 
and often I fear, I talk to myself, that I would rather have control over the sheep that come in. It just makes running the institution much easier. It's a whole lot easier if you can have people like yourself. <laughs> you know, to have someone like Matt Miller, it's just hard. You know, he blows up pumpkins. <laughs> that man blows up pumpkins. That man races cars. Do we really want them in our... Not really. <laughs> and we can... Charlie. What fun would a rainbow with one color be? What one fun would a rainbow with one color be? And yet, and yet I see through history, generation after generation, trying to keep the faith pure. And the way you keep the faith pure is to keep them out. Whoever the them are. Um, Brenda Hebe often tells it better than me, but stories of her own growing up in Mennonite communities and, and how you keep the community safe. And then you discover you can't keep the community safe because the next generation has shifted and has other ideas. Um, it's tough. It's tough inviting diversity because it means I have to discover my blind spots, places that I am, I am blind. And we all have places that we're blind. Most often we discover our blind spots when we have children. They show them up all the time. They stretch us to the limit. I, uh, I've said my piece. I didn't want to downplay the importance of this chapter because the point is not just to try and get through as much of the Bible as possible. And this tool is really important to understanding John's gospel because John is saying, I want to introduce you to a savior who dreams of a flock bigger than you can imagine. And so he will dare to drag a blind man into the holy sanctuary and declare him God's beloved. And then at the same time dare to turn it upside down and look at all the others in the temple and say, and so who's really blind here? You who think you have sight. You who think you have God's eyes to proclaim the truth might just in fact be the people who are blind. The, the passage doesn't say it, but I say it. And the very fact that you couldn't celebrate a man who suddenly can see talks about your blindness. And so you have to say, how dare this happen on a Sabbath? We should be saying, imagine, it happened on a Sabbath. What better day could it happen on? <laughs> Would you help me, Kay? I do have a page. The, I, I, you know, I wrote a book on John. This just kind of expands on it. I put some other, I just rewrote it a bit. You can take it home, you can throw it away. I don't mind. But it kind of pulls together something of where I have gone. Um, but if you hear nothing else, um, Hear the sadness, and I'm giving you the page because I want you to, to go to page two, the bottom of page two. The saddest words in this chapter 
John 10, 19 and 20. It's the very last words on page two. Page one, Jesus heals a man born blind. Page two is headed, the interpretive tool. But the very last words, John 10, 19 and 20. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Jesus is insane. How dare he dream of a God who loves blind people or loves a bigger flock than the flock who make it here. Only someone with a demon could dream of that. It is a common, a common accusation that we hear many times through history. The great reformers, those who've stood up for the faith, have often been vilified. They must be mad. And you can name any one of the great reformers. And at some point, somebody has said, he's gone off his head. Or she, it's easier to call women insane, you know, because they go insane once a month anyway. So, you know, they just... But it's such an easy label. Must be mad. You think you're going to bring them in here? You must be mad. So if Jesus gets those names, wear it with some pride. If you have somebody you would like to bring to worship, you're in good company. <laughs> we Methodists do take pride, and, and you hear us say it, that our doors are open to all. You hear us at communion saying we practice an open table. Um, but I do understand sometimes there's a gap between what we say and what we really do. I want to push us on this. Let us be willing to bring anyone. Um, many years ago, I worked in a community that was about 60% Christian, 40% Muslim. Um, kids all went to school together. They played in the streets together. Sunday was, well, no, it was Friday for the Muslims, Sunday for the Christians, when they'd go in different directions. And my next-door neighbor, Dawood, said to me, I've never been to church. I would like just to know what goes on. So I said, no, you can come with me. He said, they'll never let me through the door. Because he was conservative. He wore the white robe and he had the beard down here. I said, you can come with me. And I took him to church. And I did have some church members take me on afterwards and say, why did you bring that man into church? And I said, you don't think he needs to know that God loves him? He returned the favor. He invited me to go with him to the mosque. And I went with him on Friday night to the mosque. He got the same flack because the guys in the mosque were like, you're bringing that Christian priest into church, in, into the mosque. But we figured a friendship and we would sit and talk faith um, with each other. If I can't share my faith with someone, with my next door neighbor, then I'm failing. You know? But yes, I did get into trouble because I brought this fundamentalist Muslim into church. And we had to talk about shepherd and sheep. <laughs> Maybe you want to talk about shepherd and sheep as well.
The shepherd loves the sheep. And there's some in this flock who do not come from here, but they are welcome. Sorry, that's my sermon. I'm going to stop. Are you guys okay? Yes. You know, we, yes. So he and I then got into this habit. Um, every Saturday lunchtime, we, we sat down, we shared lunch together, and we talked faith. He will have been Friday to his prayers. I would tell him what I'm going to preach on Sunday. And I learned the lesson that the only way we're going to share faith is we need to become friends first. You cannot share faith with someone who, who you think is an object of your mission. You can only share with someone that you've made friends with. And so we had a good five years of sharing faith to a place that he was able to say, because, because he started out saying, but Muslims believe in Jesus, and they do. Jesus is one of the great prophets in the Muslim tradition. But we actually got to a place where he is able to say to me, you know, I think we Muslims don't understand Jesus. And, and I have started reading these stories of Jesus that we don't have in the Quran. Um, I learned a lot about the prophet at the same time. And a lot of, because I was totally ignorant of Islam. Um, and in questioning each other, we were both able to say to, he's able to say to me, you know, you Christians don't always believe the stuff that you've got in your Bible. And I had to say, you're right. And he was able to hear from me saying, I found some stuff in the Quran that you guys seem to be missing. And he said, it's very uncomfortable to admit that, but you're right. <laughs> um, so we both grew in our friendship and grew in an appreciate. I have not got a story that says he became a Christian, but he did begin to understand a Jesus that he'd never met before. I can't finish the story because then I moved. But um, we've stayed in touch. His kids have grown up. We keep the conversation going. He's in God's hands. Yeah. No. Um, Stephen, Steve, my short answer would be I, I would struggle with the legalism of Islam who quite clearly line up. You need to keep the rules. You need to keep your prayer rules. And if you don't keep the rules, you're in trouble with God. My encounter with God through Jesus is of a much more gracious God. Islam's encounter with God is a much more law-giving God and you break the law and you're in trouble. There's, there's a, it's harder to hear grace. So I was not persuaded. Um, because Jesus just takes me to a God of love and grace and kindness that, that I revel in. I, uh, I did go from time to time. And so that community, I did go to, to shul, and I got to know the imam who ran the shul. And there was a time where that community was under huge pressure during the years of protest in South Africa, and we as religious leaders were able to work together and keep our people safe. Um, and I wouldn't have been able to do that if the imam didn't know me. Um, we got to know each other and were able to work together. 
and the imam wouldn't have got to know me if my next-door neighbor didn't take me and introduce me. He would have wondered who the hell is this guy. So it, the friendships made a big difference. I'm willing to leave them in God's hands. <laughs> yeah. Yes. If we don't understand each other, it's hard to love. I am convinced we need to make friends. I can't talk at anyone. There are people that I passionately disagree with. But I think my disagreement is going to be better heard if I'm willing to sit down and, you know. So I've often said to someone, so let's have a cup of coffee. Coffee cures everything. It's amazing. <laughs> well, thank you for coming. God bless you. My question uh, for Gary, yes. If I don't say this, Steve will have the best story. <laughs> In 2012, we went to a Walmart on a Sunday morning, and it was closed by law. Okay. <laughs> you know, like, yes, no yes. Okay, okay. Yeah. You can't have fun by going to Walmart on Sunday. I was just going to think, yeah. Walmart's not exactly... <laughs> anyway. Um, there's a, a football competition coming up one of these Sundays. The Super Bowl, which is when? Two weeks away. So next week you'll tell me if you want the week after or not. Um, I've got warned about that. Okay. Yeah. So next week we're going to talk about Jesus's best friends. Uh, Jesus had buddies that he hung out with. I love the story because it just makes him very human. So we will go there next week. God bless.